Matthew and chapter 5, if you would go there first this morning, Matthew chapter 5, uh, we are going to get to our text in chapter 7 and verse 13, but when we get there, we are coming to the concluding section of a sermon that the Lord preached that began back in chapter 5. And if you've been with us in our series at all, you know that before we even get to the sermon itself, Matthew has presented Jesus in the first four chapters as God's chosen king, the king of the kingdom of heaven with all of the credentials. And Matthew's laid that out in four chapters. And with that idea in mind that he is God's king, it's not surprising when we get to chapter 5 and the sermon that Jesus preached, if you just look at verse number 3 and the opening words, they are blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the what? Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And that, the, the theme of this sermon is what are the characteristics of the true citizens of Christ's kingdom? They are marked by certain qualities about them. And if you come down to verse 20, still here in chapter 5, you see a major transition point in the development of this theme when Jesus declared, as you can see in verse 20, that except your righteousness exceed, and I'm going to add this, that of the most externally religious men of that day. You'll have to have a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. Or you are not, will not be part of Christ's, what? Still right there, of his kingdom. And so from the next verse on to the end of the chapter, chapter 5, Jesus uses a number of illustrations from the Ten Commandments even to drive home something of the nature of true righteousness. Okay? The true righteousness that marks the citizens of Christ's kingdom is not something that is merely external, superficial law-keeping. And Jesus drives that point home all the way through the end of chapter 5. When we move into chapter 6, there is a transition from emphasizing the nature of righteousness to the practice of true righteousness. And we've identified some of those and outlined some of those practices under discussion beginning in chapter 6. And that theme of the practice of righteousness continues right up into chapter 7 where the first 12 verses emphasize true righteousness in relationships with others. What is doing right? What, what are true citizens of Christ's kingdom marked by in terms of doing right in relationships? So those, again, that are true citizens of his kingdom, they have certain distinctive marks. And with that groundwork laid, we now come to, again, the concluding section of this sermon. And it begins in verse 13, and it actually will run down through verse number 27. And we're just going to begin to explore together this morning. But the big idea of verses 13 and 14, if you'll come there, it's not hard to understand. We can use a little discussion of some of the expressions in verse number 13, when Jesus urged his listeners, as you look at verse 13, he urged them to enter his kingdom. Is still the idea. Enter it through the straight gate. And that word for straight is a word that communicates uh, 
the concept of something that is narrow. Then, of course, narrow is the opposite of the expression in the next phrase, where you can see which speaks of a wide gate and a broad pathway. In verse 14, the word straight there, as you can see, it is again communicating that concept narrow. But what is interesting is that the word in verse 14 translated narrow is actually a little bit different term. And its most basic sense refers to something that would be pressing up against you. Um, maybe rubbing up against you, and even the concept, some say, of, of kind of squishing you, okay? It, it's on either side, and it's, it's rubbing, it's squishing, okay? It's putting pressure. It's translated elsewhere in the Bible, sometimes as something that is troubling, other times as something that is afflicting. So when you talk about a pathway like it's used here, you could, you could think of something that this is, this is a hard path. And again, I think those expressions taken together communicate a concept that, that's pretty easy to get a grasp on. I'm just thinking about even here in our auditorium. There's actually kind of three ways to exit this auditorium. And two of them are more narrow than the other. One of them is over here on my left. And I can't remember seeing anybody exit our auditorium that way. And part of that is because it goes out into a cluttered hallway. Some of you have never even been there. And then the door, I think, is a metal door, and it goes out to some rickety steps and a railing that probably might need replaced, and, and then into the grass and a gravel driveway. Okay? That's far removed from everything. And like I said, I haven't seen anybody exit our auditorium that way. Some of you will exit over here, but you can still see. I mean, that's pretty narrow. Some of you would do that because the nursery's out there. I typically do because my office is out there, and maybe there's some instruments that are in the back room, but... But again, it's not the majority that leave here going that way. Because that's narrow, the hallway's narrow. Okay? Most of the people that leave here this morning are going to leave through. We got double doors, a broad lobby, out to more double doors, and straight out to the parking lot. Okay? And, and some of you actually, even when you get out there into your cars, you're going to have to make a decision about which route you take to get home. Okay, depending on, you know, road conditions, what your objectives are, are you going anywhere else in between? And, and all of that that we're talking about is just, that, that's what the Lord has under discussion. I mean, we make those choices about doorways and pathways, and we make them all the time. But what Jesus is referring to in these verses 13 and 14 is not simply the choice you, you make about, you know, uh, you're going to take a walk, you're going to take a bike ride, you're going to go home. But it's talking about your overall lifestyle. It's talking about choices you make about where, where do you invest the strength of your time, especially your discretionary time. Where are you putting your time? Where are you putting your energy? Where are you investing even your money? Where are you investing your gifts? Where, where are your priorities? What are even the motives that dictate your schedule and your agenda? What choices are you making in terms of the pathways of life and the direction you're headed in life? And when you start to talk in those terms, Jesus said that everyone is really headed to one of two destinations. Again, in verse number 13, as you look there, the destination can be summarized under the one word of destruction. 
That's where some are headed. And in verse 14, the other destination can be summarized, as you see, under the one word of, of life. Everyone in this auditorium, everyone that, that lives around us, Every boy, girl, man, woman, grandma, grandpa, everyone that has ever lived or will ever live, everyone who's alive right now on the face of the earth is headed to one of two destinations, and that's it. One of them is destruction, and the other one of them is life. And there's no other in-betweens. Now, brother, if I, if, if I ask you what you think the mindset is of the typical person in our country regarding eternal destinations. I think our answers would agree. Most of the people we know assume that the vast majority of their family and friends and co-workers are not on the path to everlasting destruction in hell. But they assume that most of the people they know, at least the ones they're close to, most of them are on the path to everlasting life in heaven. And people express those kind of assumptions in, in a variety of ways. I mean, for one thing, people just kind of hardly give any thought to the whole question of, of eternity. Many do. Some people are just, you know, they're, they're building a house. They're working towards the best toys, enjoying their family, planning their retirement or their next vacation. And they hardly even give a second about eternity. In their minds, there's nothing really in that arena to fear. People express the kind of assumption that we're talking about at funerals. I have never been to one funeral as an observer where there wasn't a pronouncement made that so-and-so is now in a far better place or they are finally at rest. Or they're enjoying their favorite pastime in heaven. Or they're looking down on us even right now. All of those expressions you're familiar with. Just yesterday, an extended family member of ours who has rejected multiple occasions of a clear, straightforward Bible witness of the gospel. This lady posted a picture of a deceased family member and mentioned how many years she had been in heaven as of yesterday and how much she's looking forward to seeing her in heaven. And that lady I know has rejected a clear Bible witness of the gospel. People express their assumptions by the way they, they, they talk about religion. They assume all religions are basically good. They're pretty much the same. It doesn't really matter what the differences are. You just need to be sincere in your faith. Whatever your faith is, just be sincere about it. And if you raise a concern that it really isn't that way, if you actually even say something about, you know, I'm concerned for the individual we're talking about whether that's a, a relative or some friend of theirs they typically aren't thankful for your concern they might be indifferent and 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 just laugh you off as if you're kind of a nutcase but but quite often they get even angry at your expression of concern sometimes and we actually had a, a young lady in a previous ministry with 
parents that were unbelieving and she just had her Bible open and she can't even now remember what her Bible was open to. But her Bible was open on the counter and one of her parents came by and saw the Bible open and kind of said, so you're really into that, are you? And then it's just like your whole family, we're, because we don't believe the way you do, we're just all going to hell. A couple of years ago, uh, one of the most well-known conservative political commentators of our day, and I'm not going to say his name, most of you would know it, and then we'd just be distracted. But he actually compared what he called the disturbing theology of born-again Christians and that of Islamist terrorists. Now, he did say that no other faiths are working out their faith by killing others the same way extreme Muslims are. But he actually added that those of you who say, and I went back and got the transcript, so I'm quoting him correctly, but he said those of you that embrace born-again salvation or you're all going to hell are also disturbing. And I'm just illustrating what we all know, and that is that, that if the typical person believes in any possibility of anyone spending eternity in hell, it would have to be for the very rare, completely despicable sinner, because everyone else we assume is going to heaven. But Jesus' teaching says exactly the opposite. Again, if you look in verse 13 about the wide gate and the broad path that leads to destruction, Jesus said that's the path of how many? <laughs> I've said it in it. It's, it's the path of many. And in contrast in verse 14 about the narrow gate and the hard path that leads to life, Jesus said it's what? It's few. Few that find it. I think it's even interesting that Jesus uses the word find to describe it. The way that leads to life can be easily overlooked to somebody who isn't observant. Somebody who just is kind of casual and carefree about the whole thing of religion. Perhaps you know it's like to you know, have had an interest in seeing a, a place of business or a historical site or maybe just some... A sightseeing thing that you heard if you get there it's rewarding but it's off the beaten path and you tried to find it and eventually you're like ah it's not worth the trouble you know just forget it and and that's the way some people approach this whole subject they of eternal life you know it's probably something i should look into it probably wouldn't hurt i you know i'll go to some service i'm if i'm invited at least once but you know if it starts being too demanding <coughs> they just dismiss it that's exactly the dynamic Jesus described. Few there be that find it, that, that discover it, that embrace it, that experience. It's few. And brother, with the Lord's teaching so clear, how do you explain the fact that even people that read the Bible end up disagreeing with it? And I, I'm saying that because, again, by God's grace, and I'm so thankful for it, but I've grown up in churches like this since before I can remember. It's all I have known, and I've ministered into them. And in those churches, 
Okay? And likely in this auditorium, it's still easy for people to struggle. We know family members okay, and, and that claim a profession of some kind of faith, but they bear no marks of a relationship with God. They bear no marks of being a new creature in Christ. In some cases, even what they profess isn't rooted in scriptural facts of the gospel. But if you start talking maybe about kids or grandkids or my sister or my mom or whoever it is, I'm just sure they're in heaven. I mean, they just have to be. And we're uneasy and we are disinclined to think of relatively nice people we know. In the words of 2 Thessalonians 1 and and, and verse 9, suffering the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. That is hard. But in our uneasiness, we have a tendency to dismiss the truth. We really want it to be different. And even we struggle with letting the words of Jesus be corrective. And in addition to our own difficulties about this. There are what Jesus describes in verse 15. Will you look there? He says to beware of what? Okay, beware of false prophets. And the issue with false prophets is they don't ever look as dangerous as they are. Ever. Ever. They're going to come to you, notice in verse 15, in in sheep's clothing. Look, false prophets are not going to wear a sign announcing they're a source of lies. Right? They're going to come to you looking good, but on the inside, they are ravening wolves. They're as dangerous as it gets. How would I know if someone is a wolf? Well, you know, the guy on the TV is holding a Bible in his hand. The the author of the book has multiple degrees from a well-known established seminary. The, The minister in question has given his or her life to... Uh, to help people, and they seem very sincere. How would I know if I'm looking at a wolf? Well, you can even just start with where Jesus is right in this sermon. You will know if a prophet is teaching error if he contradicts what Jesus just said in this sermon. Okay? Do they teach that it is many headed to destruction and few headed to life? Or do they, on the other hand, on the other hand, get up in a funeral and act like almost no one is really headed to destruction and nearly everyone is headed to life. I sat in one particular funeral for a a dear lady in our church, and at least she had it straight and was praying and burdened and heartbroken that her dad was likely in hell. But when we went to the funeral in a liberal Protestant church, the the minister actually got up and almost, he didn't use the word scoundrel, but he talked, he didn't talk in glowing terms about the guy who died, but said, at least we know he's in heaven looking down on us. Yeah. 
Sometimes you will need to go further. But sometimes this one, this one test case will settle it. An elderly nun on a plane told me that God has made us to know him, love him, and live with him forever. And the church doesn't even say that Pontius Pilate and Judas Iscariot won't eventually end up in heaven. She went on to say that those who sincerely believe in God, even if they've never heard the name of Jesus, and literally her words trailed off, she didn't finish that thought. And then she said, well, who am I to judge? And the implication of, of, of all that she would, said was nearly everyone, if not everyone, perhaps everyone will eventually end up in heaven. That's a direct contradiction of Jesus. And I was sitting by a nice elderly lady who had spent, from the time she was 26, I heard her whole life. She had spent her time teaching in parochial schools, helping prostitutes go straight, working in a soup kitchen in, in Philadelphia, and on and on it goes. And she seemed very sincere. But that nice-looking, sincere lady was a false prophet. And anybody who listened to what she was teaching would be furthered on their way to a Christless eternity in hell. And the approach that liberal ministers will take in, in working around Jesus' words can be quite clever. They, of course, they won't say that Jesus lied. You know, it's harder to maintain your position as a Christian minister if you call Jesus a liar. They won't do that. But the approach they'll take is that, you know, well, Jesus lived and he, and he taught a long time ago. And the people that wrote the books, you know, of the Bible, uh, they wrote them a long time after Jesus lived. And in some cases, because of their setting, they exaggerated Jesus and they, they put their twists on things. And we really have to be careful to, you know, actually discover what Jesus really said and what he really meant by what he said. A lot of the Bible is just interpretations. And when you go down that kind of path, you end up with no authoritative revelation from God about anything. And you end up just picking and choosing what part of the Bible you like, whatever suits you, and you can just discard the rest. You just feel your way through the whole religion business and whatever you don't end up uncomfortable with. Again, you just, you just dismiss that. And brethren, ultimately, you, you can be your own God without directly saying so. That's what ends up happening. And you know what? That's why a false prophet can be so popular. Because you end up becoming your own God. And you're okay. If you portray God as kind of just up there on the mountain and, you know, we're all on different sides of the mountain and we're taking different paths, but we're, we're working our way all back to him. You can sound very comforting and very reassuring, but be in direct contradiction to Jesus. And the issue isn't Baptist or Methodist or Presbyterian or whatever label. The issue is, does the preacher proclaim what Jesus proclaimed? And beginning in verse number 16, there is another test that can help us in discerning true and, and false teachers. And that test is, verse number 16, the kind of fruit in general, <coughs> that, that their teaching is producing. And you can see that line of reasoning run all the way down through the wrap-up statement in, in verse number 20, which is in verse 20, wherefore by their fruits ye shall what? Ye shall know them. 
And again, the, the immediate context is the evaluation of the teachers. So again, the question is, do those that adhere to the teaching live lives reflective of the followers of Jesus? I've said this before, but many times I start to form an opinion about a certain minister by, by just listening to the people in their ministry. I think you do that too. You start to, oh, those people are, they all sit under that teaching or they sit under that preaching. It's interesting. Some of their characteristics. If I have a chance, I watch uh, the way they live their lives. And I know there isn't always a one-for-one -one, um, connection, but I've watched the, the children of leaders um, to, to learn what I can about them. And, and I know that the children of leadership are born sinners, right? <clears throat> and and, and they, they don't all respond to the work of God at the same time in life. They don't all grow at the same rate. I remember <clears throat> one preacher, I had run into him someplace and I said, hey, I saw your son a few weeks back and he was like, oh, where'd you see him? And um, I told him, and I said, appreciate him, and <laughs> he named his son, and he said, oh, my son, my son, and then he said to me, I'm so thankful for the doctrine of progressive, revela uh, progressive sanctification, because he's got a lot of progressing left to do, <laughs> and I, I could tell that that preacher dad was burdened about his son, but I can tell you of a time where I was sitting in their larger auditorium listening to that preacher preach. And I happened to be sitting on the front right over there. <clears throat> and his kids, which were probably upper junior high to high school and a couple in college that happened to be home, they were sitting front and center. And I was listening to the preaching, but I could also see those kids as well as I could see that preacher. And I've known the man, and I've kind of known Stan's, but honestly, I've, sometimes you just wonder, is, is that guy for real? You know, I wonder what it's really like. And I can tell you that when I watch those kids sitting on the front row, captivated with their dad's preaching, I thought the guy has to be real in his home. There's got to be something real and genuine in there. <clears throat> and we make assumptions, don't we? And actually we have, we have scriptural teaching to say, hey, watch. Look at the fruit. <clears throat> What's going on under that ministry? And again, the, no, the word of God is pure and without error, and no man or woman is. And yet in the big picture, again, there's something to be said for looking at connections. Does, as you think about fruit, what, kind of, what, what are some of the big fruits you could be looking for? Does, does the ministry produce a burden in its followers to tell other people about Jesus? Really? And there's a variety of approaches to evangelism. And, you know, you can pass out tracts. You can invite others to regular service or just something special. You can befriend neighbors and coworkers and, and give your testimony and, and, and communicate in different ways. You can, you can ask somebody to your home for a six-week evangelistic Bible study so that you're thorough and careful. And I'm saying that to say no one should assume that because I'm not seeing other people do evangelism the same way they aren't evangelistic. But it is still a true measure of evaluation. Are people being stirred up to tell others about Christ? 
Even when you talk about that whole approach, does the preaching and teaching produce people that have grasped the distinctive message of gospel truth, the finality of heaven and hell to the point that they're burdened to tell others and, and they're not just engaged in kind of doing a Christian ethic and doing good and social everything and never actually get around to opening their mouth and telling people about Jesus. Does it kind of just produce social do-gooders? Or are people grasping, hey, we got to proclaim truth. That's the only thing that it saves. You could think about other, other dynamics. Does the teaching ministry yield a fruit in people committed to Jesus' own body, which is the church? In Acts 20 and, and verse 28, Paul said to take heed to yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. The church purchased with the blood of Christ. Or think about Jesus saying to Peter, upon this rock I'll build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It's my church and I'm going to do the building of it. And when people recognize that Jesus purchased not just lives, but he purchased the church to himself with his own blood. And he said, that's mine, and I'll do the building of it. <clears throat> when people are gripped with that, they respond, like the Hebrews 10, by not forsaking the assembling of themselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another so much more as you see the day approaching. They see that as critical. They don't see the church as something secondary or third or fourth in the plan of God and everything else is the big stuff. They actually see that's where it's at. Does the ministry produce a people, again, that make gathering together on the Lord's day and engaging in the life of the church a priority or do they just have a take it or leave it attitude about recreations of all sorts and yard work and fixing the car and whatever else. And I can go on. Jesus said in John chapter 10, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. The words of Jesus mean everything to those that are truly his and it shows in their lives. His followers embrace his own exclusive message about himself as the one way to heaven. His followers have internalized that message to the point that they proclaim it to others. They invest their time and energy and money in its advancement. His followers are engaged in the life of the church that he purchased to himself. They do it because they regard his words as the source of life. And not at any level do they just simply carve out their own religious experience according to their own notions. Listen, brethren, these are the few people that have entered the narrow gate. These are the few people that are taking the path that leads to life. And I want to ask this morning, because this is where the Lord's sermon goes. This is where it concludes. The whole point of saying that is saying, look, what path are you on today? Because there's one path that heads to destruction, and there is one path that heads to life. <clears throat> and there are many on this one. And there are few on this one. And the whole point is to say, and which one are you on? Because there is an in-between kind of, sort of, mostly one way or the other. Now, brethren, if you really can 
even in the hearing of the word of God this morning. The spirit of God taking the word of God, apply it to your heart and say, by the grace of God, I really am a child of God. And I do believe I can say I'm on the way that leads to life. Then I do want to just urge you to be humbled by the fact that that is the grace of God to you. Because another truth in this passage is that apart from God's arresting you, that apprehending you, Paul used those kind of terms. Paul said, I was on the road to Damascus and I was apprehended, I was arrested. I mean, he, Saul of Tarsus was on a path that seemed right in his own eyes. And brethren, apart from the grace of God, that's where we all would be. Continuing down that path that seems right in our own eyes, but Proverbs 14, 12 says, but the way there, the ends thereof are the ways of death. It's God's mercy that makes any of us see the danger of where we would be headed on our own. It's God's mercy that turns us and opens our eyes to see Christ as the one and only way, the source of truth and life, the only source of a relationship with the Father. And brethren, if that's the case in your life today, then thank God for his grace that stopped you and turned you and opened your eyes to see Christ. But if that's not the case today, today is the day of salvation. Now is the appointed time. It's appointed unto man once to die. After this, the judgment. Today's the only moment you know that you have the opportunity to say, God, save me and turn me. And by your grace, I'll be headed down an entirely different path. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? And it's right to just even explore, and you, you likely have been, if you're sensitive at all to the words of Jesus and his spirit, you likely have been exploring, are these characteristics, are these marks of Christ's true citizens, the citizens of his kingdom, are they true of me? And if not, dear friend, don't just keep assuming. It's going to be okay. Today is the day to turn to the Lord. And if you do see those marks, I want to encourage you this morning. Those, those are marks that are there because of the grace of God. That's the result of God at work in you. And the God who's at work in you will keep you. And he will take you to his heavenly home. And you need to thank him humbly for what he's done in your life.